Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted September 30th, 2016, we talk with former BBC and NPR China correspondent Louisa Lim about her article headlined Silencing the Echoes of Tiananmen in the new WPJ Fall issue, cover line History's Ghosts. We'll also point out other top features in the new fall issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, American interests and American lives abroad could be at stake. At least that's what the White House and Central Intelligence Agency say. Now that Congress has overridden President Obama's veto of a bill to allow American citizens to sue Saudi Arabia for any possible involvement in the 2001 terror attacks on New York and Washington. Since 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudi citizens, some 9-11 families have suspected of some kind of official Saudi link that has never been proven, and the Saudi government has always denied it. President Obama says the veto opens a Pandora's box for foreigners to sue the U.S. government. He adds that undermines national security and American interests around the world. More U.S. troops are headed to Iraq, about 600 more. They'll assist the Iraqi government with the upcoming offensive against the Islamic State. The seizure of Mosul is said to be the principal objective. Many military analysts say territory held by ISIS continues to shrink. And Shimon Peres, the former Israeli president, Nobel Peace Laureate, 20th century titan, is being praised across the American foreign policy spectrum. So great was his stature that three American presidents, including Barack Obama, insisted on going to Jerusalem to pay their respects at his funeral. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. <laughs> CNN coverage of the famous confrontation between a slim, white-shirted Chinese man and Red Army tanks in Beijing's embattled Tiananmen Square nearly 30 years ago. Who and where Tank Man is now is unknown, and it is a sad triumph of the Communist Party's brutal smashing of the Tiananmen protest back in 1989 and its continuing control over education, mass media, and social media that a contemporary survey on four Beijing University campuses found fully 85% of students unable to identify the iconic image of Tank Man or truly understand the bloody uprising and repression he came to symbolize worldwide. That survey was conducted by veteran BBC and NPR China correspondent Louisa Lim, now a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne and author of The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited, from Oxford University Press in 2014. With the last known Tiananmen prisoner scheduled for release next month, Lim now has written an article headlined Silencing the Echoes of Tiananmen for the new Fall 2016 issue of World Policy Journal cover theme, History's Ghosts, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Louisa Lim, welcome to World Policy on Air. Delighted to be here. 
For those not around or paying attention in 1989, what was the underlying cause of the protest at Tiananmen Square in Beijing? Well, the protest first started in mid-April in 1989 when the former premier, Huyabang, suddenly died of a heart attack. And to begin with, there were uh, acts of mourning by the students who felt quite sympathetic towards Huyabang because of his, um, his, his reputation as a liberal, as a reformer. Um, but very quickly, these turned into protests calling for democracy, for free, free speech, for an to corruption and nepotism. Um, and I should uh, emphasize that the students wanted the government to reform. This was a protest from within. They wanted the party to change. They weren't calling for the government to be overthrown. But it came against the backdrop of economic reform. Um, the economic reform process was underway, so there was beginning to be uh, a divide between rich and poor, widening inequality. Uh, there was a lot of talk about corruption and nepotism. There was this atmosphere of uncertainty, and the students really uh, wanted to uh, drive change and to be part of that change. How long did the protest last before it was crushed, and what was the toll in dead, wounded, and arrested? So the protest lasted from, for seven weeks, from April the 15th to June the 4th. I mean, when it comes to the numbers, we really still don't know for sure. Uh, the preliminary Chinese estimate was that 241 people uh, were killed, but I mean, clearly that figure was much, much too low. Um, at the time, the Swiss ambassador went round hospitals, and he made an estimate of around 2,700 uh, people dead. But that uh, figure was very quickly withdrawn um, after some with some political pressure. So the number of the dead is unclear to this day. It ranges uh, from hundreds to a few thousand. Uh, the number of those injured and arrested is even more unclear at this point. But one of the things that I discovered uh, when I was writing my book and in my research was that it wasn't just in Beijing that people died. In the city of Chengdu, more than a thousand kilometers. Uh, Kilometers away, there were also uh, protests that were put down with force, and there, the, the, according to the government estimates, eight people died um, in in the clampdown there. And again, those figures are mu much lower than the kind of figures that eyewitnesses estimate. But it's clear that around the country. Um, there were protests. There were not deaths in many places, mainly Beijing and, and some in Chengdu, but there were many arrests later, and we really have no clear idea of, of those, those numbers either. The extent of the force involved suggests that beyond clearing the square in Beijing that day, China's leaders meant to send a larger warning about dissent generally. Why and how did that policy change to one of erasing the harsh message of Tiananmen from published history, uh, from public discourse, from mass media, uh, if not from the memory of those who participated or witnessed it? Well, I would argue that the act of suppressing the protesters, that act of violent repression is one which has required other acts of repression as time goes by, uh, including, as you say, the repression of memory, of collective memory, of speech and expression, because those who have tried to remember have found uh, that, that they have been punished for active acts of remembering. And we've also seen over the years uh, repression of uh, 
political aspirations and, of course, the repression of physical protests. And over time, the state has had to funnel more and more resources uh, in terms of manpower, but also ideological, financial resources in order to keep up this kind of spiral of repression. And I imagine that the image of repression did not suit the the, the evolving uh, presence of China in the, in a capitalist marketplace around the world. Well, I, I mean, the Chinese government has, over time, their attitude towards Tiananmen has has changed. You know. Immediately after the protests ended, there were, there were there was a lot of government propaganda that was put out. That really, um, its aim was to tell the government side of the story, to really uh, set the government's narrative that these protests had been counter-revolutionary riots uh, aimed at toppling the government. And so, you know, there was this almost you know 24-hour. Um, uh, blanket propaganda, and we saw large amounts of material being printed and disseminated. You know, for example, in Chengdu, the place that I wrote about, a, a small book was published uh, called The Whole Story of the Chengdu Riots, and in the first printing of that, they printed 700,000 copies. So the aim was really to set the narrative for the domestic audience um, and also uh, to a certain extent for the international audience. But as time has gone on, the Chinese government has really tried to dilute that message. So those, you know, the propaganda that it put out has all disappeared. If you tried to buy those books uh, in China today, they would not be on the shelves of any bookcases. It would be, they probably, you wouldn't find them in any libraries. Um, and again, even when it comes to talking about what happened, uh, the, the language has changed. I mean, there are very few um, public uh, statements about the events of 1989 now, but even in those, you can see a change in the tone. So to begin with, um, the government referred to it as counter-revolutionary riots, and then that was softened to become a political storm. And again, that's been softened again. So nowadays, if the events of June the 4th are ever mentioned, it's uh, referred to as the Tiananmen incident, which is something, you know, language which is so bland that it carries really no connotations at all for people who have no memory of what happened. So I think there are all kinds of ways in which the government has tried to change uh, the memory uh, of 1989 and tried to also change the framing of it, both uh, domestically and internationally. And yet the true story of Tiananmen has such persistence it can make even those uninvolved and initially unaware feel like victims themselves, you write. Tell the story of the civil rights lawyer Teng Biao, uh, his awakening to that story and how he sees it affecting China today. Teng Biao is a civil rights lawyer and he now lives actually in exile in the U.S. But he was just 16 years old in 1989 and he was a student in Jilin province in northeast China. And he followed what happened in Beijing um, on television. He completely... Um, he completely believed everything that he saw on CCTV. Uh, and it was only a couple of years later when he himself entered Beijing University as a student that he actually found out what happened. But I think what's interesting is that today he really sees himself as a survivor of Tiananmen because he... To his mind, the impact of Tiananmen on his generation was so all-encompassing in every way that, that, that everybody, 
who is a survivor of that. And I think um, his mindset is also related to the, the, the kind of work that he has done in recent years. Um, working as a, a rights defender um, and a lawyer within China. And even when he um, spoke to Congress, he drew these explicit links between uh, the clampdown on rights defenders in China today and what happened in 1989. He said, you know, as the activists are captured and tortured, the gunfire of Tiananmen is echoing in the background. And I think, you know, what he's trying to say is that the patterns uh, that were set after 1989 are still the patterns that govern China today. Uh, the policy directions set then are still those that rule China today. Talk about the extraordinary amount of resources China spends on internal security uh, to which Tiananmen is considered a threat uh, versus its conventional and strategic military budget uh, and what that indicates. So, I mean, what we've seen from China's own uh, government statistics that in three out of the last six years, China has spent more on its internal security than its own army, its defense budget. Um, uh, and when I say internal security, this refers to systems like the paramilitary police, surveillance systems, informants networks, the police system, court systems. Um, all of this is part of this machine which has been called the sort of apparatus of stability maintenance because in the aftermath of Tiananmen, the top priority was always and has always been maintaining stability. And it's interesting um, how much money and how many resources have been poured into that over the years. I should say that actually uh, we, don't, we do not actually have statistics for internal security spending for the last couple of years. Um, uh, when the statistics started being uh, noticed, and the foreign media started writing about how much uh, the Chinese government was spending on its internal security. I think maybe that was a red flag to the government, so they changed the way that they actually announced their own, uh, their own expenditure. So we actually don't really know how much is being spent now. But I think that even uh, these uh, figures show how seriously China takes the issue of internal stability, and it shows that um, when it comes to perceived threats, the Chinese government seems to perceive that the threats to its rule come, serious threats and challenges to its rule come from within as well as from outside. And remind us who've been the most recent targets of domestic crackdowns. Well, in the last few years, we've seen very wide-ranging domestic crackdowns that have really um, targeted a huge variety of different groups. Um, you know, I, I think uh, we, we've seen one of the largest uh, clampdowns was against lawyers uh, in July last year. Uh, over a period of a couple of days, more than 300 lawyers were summoned for questioning, and some of them still remain in, in detention. Uh, we've also seen action against uh, dissidents, activists, uh, uh, feminists, um, religious groups like underground Christians and then those uh, accused of separatism, you know, Tibetans, Uyghurs, 
so, so really the net has been very wide and, you know, we've seen in the last few years uh, some also very worrying cases. Uh, one of them was the case of five booksellers uh, who worked for a publishing house in Hong Kong that put out quite um, uh, salacious books about ch Chinese politics and uh, five uh, Hong Kong booksellers uh, disappeared from Hong Kong and reappeared in China. Uh, um, confessing to various crimes on national television. So, so it seems as if the net uh, has been increasingly wide in recent years. But burying history in the Internet era is not as simple as it was before. Uh, what does downplaying Tenement require now with 688 million Chinese online communicating, searching? Yes, that's right. Nowadays, um, it really does require an immense censorship apparatus um, to sort of stop online commemorations and searches about, about Tiananmen and, of course, about other subjects that the Chinese government deems to be, uh, deems to be sensitive. So, you know, you see all kinds of various means of censoring conversations. Uh, sometimes uh, you, you, you see uh, people's posts being disappeared or made private or just whole accounts being deleted. But you also see the way in which uh, Internet users have adjusted their own language to try and get around these blocks. So you see this kind of increasingly sophisticated attempt to bypass censorship, um, which, you know, sometimes the, the extent of the censorship is quite ludicrous. So, for example, the words June the 4th, in Chinese, it's Liu Se Six Four, and of course, around the anniversary, this is a search term which is blocked um, on Chinese uh, Weibo, which is the Chinese equivalent of Twitter. So, internet users started saying May the Thirty Fifth instead, but then that was blocked. So then the. Uh, uh, bit by bit, all these other terms that people started using were blocked. So uh, examples of block words were uh, that day, that year, tomorrow, today, uh, nostalgia, when spring turns to summer, all these very roundabout ways of referring to June the 4th um, have, have been censored. And you can imagine the kind of um, apparatus that is required to, to have that level of censorship. I mean, of course, things still do slip through the net, and particularly net, uh, Internet users have become very... Um, uh, very good at using pictures and other other ways of referring to June the 4th that are, that are harder to pick up. New technology and China's expanding international presence also has spread its censorship beyond its own borders, online, in print, in classrooms, you write. Give us some examples. That's right. I mean, I think this is something that we're really starting to see as more Chinese students go overseas to international universities. And we're starting to see this atmosphere where classes with many Chinese students almost tend to replicate the, the constraints which they're under inside China, but in foreign classrooms. And I, I think that uh, it is interesting that it seems to be the case that it, 
when it comes to certain very sensitive subjects, uh, students that perhaps have grown up within a system now are carrying the, that kind of self-censorship inside them and find that outside China they're, they're also uh, nervous about talking uh, about these topics and the, the, there have been you know, a number of academics who have talked about the fact that uh, even in foreign classrooms Chinese students uh, are replicating the same closed discursive space, the same closed intellectual atmosphere is outside China, and I think that that is quite worrying. What about the collusion of Western operations like LinkedIn? So, yes, we are also seeing um, moves by China to uh, really extend its influence into other domains. And I think an interesting example, uh, which I forgot to mention actually in your last question, was uh, the example of Chinese language media overseas. So, uh, for example, here in Australia, there's a large number of Chinese language newspapers, but increasingly these are being acquired by uh, either by, by, by people whose views are simply Pathetic to the Chinese government. And it was very interesting that an academic here, John Fitzgerald at Swinburne University, did um, a kind of audit of the Chinese language news media uh, around the 25th anniversary of Tiananmen in in 2014, and he found that out of 18 Chinese language newspapers in Australia, 11 did not mention the anniversary at all in any way. So his, his view was that actually nowadays the, la the majority of the Chinese language press in Australia is controlled by, uh, uh, by people Sensitive, uh, by, by people who are sympathetic to the, gov the government's way of thinking. Um, and I think we are also seeing this move where some Western technology platforms are more concerned about access to this massive Chinese market than they are about freedom of expression and of information. Uh, and that was certainly the case uh, with the example of LinkedIn. So again, this was in 2014, uh, at the 25th anniversary of the crackdown. Um, LinkedIn users who had their accounts hosted in China found that they were actually being censored. They were not being permitted to post any, any, any information or any articles about the anniversary of the crackdown. And that was the case regardless of where they were physically in the world. If they had opened an account while in China, even if they were overseas in the US or the UK, their account was being censored. And it was quite interesting that the spokesman actually made a, a very explicit link um, between the need for profit. He said that in order to create value for our members, we will need to implement the Chinese government's restrictions on content. So, you know, he made a very explicit links between uh, the need to make money and the need to implement this censorship. And I think this is something that should be of concern uh, as, you know, as algorithms become more and more influential over what we see and the kind of content um, that, that, that we see. And I think it's definitely something that uh, we should be mindful of. Of course, you know that Beijing also fended off domestic dissent initially with the promise that stability would bring economic prosperity. Talk about how that worked for quite some time, and now the Chinese growth is slowing. 
That's right. I mean, uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of Tiananmen, there was um, a real push to reclaim government legitimacy uh, through delivering economic growth and a better standard of living to kind of funnel aspirations towards material aims. And this, you know, has been remarkably successful. China has seen decades of double-digit growth, but now that is slowing. And so the question, I think, is whether the government, the Chinese government, can continue to rely on this performance legitimacy. Um, so last year, we saw Chinese economy growing by 6.9%, which is the slowest pace in 25 years. And actually, in the second quarter of this year, it grew by only 6.7%. So, you know, the, the, the question uh, which everybody is watching is, is what will happen as the economy slows and the government fails, uh, uh, the government's, whether people will demand more from the government. And I think that's something that people are watching carefully. Harder times economically only strengthened the grip of corruption on the economy, often reaching the highest levels of power, we've read. You report that Beijing now seeks to control dissatisfaction about that with renewed nationalism uh, and assertive foreign policy, notably anti-Japanese. I mean, that's right. We have seen a real push under the rubric of President Xi Jinping's China dream. And this is the, really the dream of a national revitalization. Uh, and one of the ways in which uh, this has been happening has been by sort of emphasizing the, the history and emphasizing um, the, the party's anti-Japanese credentials. So I think this is um, something which has been very successful uh, over the past few decades. And it's actually, again, it, this is a policy that grew out of out of the post-Tiananmen period um, that Deng Xiaoping decided that one of the mistakes that the government had made in, it, in 1989 and the run-up to 1989 was not giving enough education to its people, that, that, that the young students hadn't understood how much the Communist Party had really done for them. And so he put in place this immense program of patriotic education. And that's a huge ideological campaign that goes, runs through um, schools, through the educational system, through the media. Um, and also even the entertainment industry. And so I think what we're seeing now is uh, a younger generation that has really grown up um, with these patriotic values that have been very firmly inculcated in them. So it, it is quite easy for the government to use these. And I think that the, the, because of this sort of ideological um, this ideological education that students have received, I think that the, the idea of the China dream is also one that is that's very attractive to them. You say the party's tortured and manipulative approach to history is seen in one of the current president's favorite phrases. What's that and how does it connect with another phrase, uh, historical nihilism? 
One of President Xi Jinping's favorite phrases recently has been that history is the best textbook. But actually, when he talks about history, what he means is the party's view of history is the best textbook. And what's interesting is that this is, this is really being codified in law. We've seen this, uh, this idea of historical nihilism um, really being emphasized um, by, by the government. And even, uh, you know, we're seeing court cases about historical nihilism. And uh, what, what it really means is that any other view of history that is, be, that is being talked about, which does not accord with the government's view of history, is being defined as historical nihilism. Although I think the um, official, the official uh, definition of it is uh, radically denying the historical inevitability of China's socialist path and denying the leadership of the Communist Party of China. So I think it's interesting because what we're seeing is real attempts to put into law uh, the government's monopoly over history and to using legal means to ensure that people do not uh, talk publicly about other views of history. And we've just seen this very, very interesting court case where uh, a journalist who questioned a party legend, so it was a legend about the five heroes of Langyao Mountain and how they died, and he questioned it publicly and um, he was taken to court uh, and found guilty of historical nihilism and forced, uh, has been asked to apologize. And it really shows, I think, the, the, the extent that the government will go to in order to keep control over the historical narrative. Yeah, and you say that the job of party historians, even loyal media professionals, uh, is an increasingly fraught endeavor. Uh, there was a slip made by the state-run Global Times about this last Tiananmen prisoner uh, soon scheduled for release. That's right. I mean, I think it's very difficult because it's hard to know, you know, what can be talked about, which episodes can be talked about and which should be forgotten. And even what language to use in which context uh, can be very hard to, uh, um, to fathom. So I think party historians, especially at a time of ideological tightening like this, they are treading a very, a very narrow tightrope. And of course, that, that leads to uh, the, uh, more self-censorship because there's always the fear that you might say something wrong. So often stay, staying silent is the safest option. Um, but yes, one example of this was in the reporting by the Global Times, which is a state-run tabloid. Um, and it reported on the impending release of the last Tiananmen prisoner. So this is a man named Miao Dashun, who has been in prison since June uh, 1989. And his crime then was throwing a burning basket at a, on a tank. And there was an editorial that the Global Times wrote that mentioned him. And it said, you know, if you make the wrong gamble with history, your life is worth less than a feather's weight. But after the editorial came out, the Global Times was reprimanded by the internet regulator. And it, one of the factors behind that may have been that even mentioning the last Tiananmen prisoner uh, is, is, is probably seen as an error because, of course, within China, nobody 
will have even known who this person was before he was mentioned by the Global Times. And probably there is a significant percentage of young Chinese who might read that and also be confused by, uh, you know, by references to what happened in 89 because they might have not even known that anything happened there. So it really shows how hard it is, um, even with this apparatus of control and censorship to, to, to ensure uh, that everyone takes the uniform line. We should ask more about this living ghost of Tiananmen and why he alone was imprisoned for so long. Well, I mean, it's difficult to know the exact details because we haven't had news from about him for many, many years. And many of the people who were imprisoned at the same time as him have been since released. So the information about him that I was able to find out was relatively old. But those who were in prison at the same time of him, as him said that he had this very unyielding um, view that he absolutely refused to um, accept that he had done anything wrong and he also uh, wouldn't um, wouldn't do forced labor you know he, he was resisting within um, the prison system so I think that's commonly seen to be as a as the, one of the main reasons why he is the last prisoner because of course within the Chinese system if you accept your crime um, then it is seen as um, it's seen that the system is really designed for people who accept their crime. And if you continue to resist the idea that you've done anything wrong, uh, it's seen as the system has not worked in reforming you. So, um, you know, there are those that say the main reason that he's still in prison is not just because of what he did in 1989, but more because of this thought crime in prison, this refusal to admit that he has done anything wrong. Louisa Lim, thank you. Thank you. Veteran BBC and NPR China correspondent Louisa Lim is now a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne and author of The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited, from Oxford University Press in 2014. With the last known Tiananmen prisoner scheduled for release next month, Lim wrote the article headlined Silencing the Echoes of Tiananmen for World Policy Journal's new Fall 2016 issue. Cover theme, History's Ghosts. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten on Ethiopia's original sin, the Oromo tragedy, and on the decline of sovereignty in the Arab world, by noted Beirut-based author and journalist Rami Khoury. And listen next week when our podcast will consider healing the invisible wounds of war with Greek tragedy. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.